0: Hello, I'm Andrea Bain, and welcome to another episode of The Climate Challengers, where we speak with people who are leading the fight against climate change and learn what we can all do to be climate challengers in our everyday lives. So far on the show, we've heard from nuclear activists and former skeptics, electrification specialists, electric vehicle enthusiasts, and clean energy industry leaders. We have learned about what's being done to lower our carbon emissions and we have heard that it will be a very challenging task to meet our targets and prevent the worst of climate change. This is why, in addition to increasing traditional clean energy sources like solar, hydro and nuclear, we also need new technologies to come online and help us move the needle even further. So today, we're going to look ahead to new ideas that are on the horizon and solutions that are already here but have yet to be widely deployed. And to help us do that, my guest Ron Dizzy is here. Ron started in tech, but has since spent his career working to bring new energy technologies to market. He is a venture capitalist who was the first leader of the Advanced Energy Center at Mars and is now Managing Director of Red Jar Capital. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm great.
1: How are you, Andrea?
0: I'm good. I want to dive right into this conversation with you. And I want you to start off telling us a little bit about your career and what led you to becoming a venture capitalist focused on clean energy. And why clean power?
1: Uh, I, I guess I started in management consulting, but in the late 90s, ended up migrating into venture capital. I actually helped the Teachers Pension Plan launch their venture program. Uh, And shortly after that, I joined Celtic House, which was uh, an early stage tech-focused VC. I I joined there in 2000, I guess. I left in 2007 because I wanted to take on a truly operational role and became CEO of of a clean tech company. I believed at that time that clean energy was sort of at a tipping point and that there would be opportunity. And I'd learned as a VC, it was way more important to be in the right sector uh, than anything else, um, and and I believed even from 2007 that this would be a generational way to create wealth. I ran that company and ballot was named for uh, seven years, I guess, and then left to uh, become the founding managing director of the Advanced Energy Center at Mars. That was a chance to work in what was really a nonprofit, but to really see if we could help speed the pace of adoption of innovation. Uh, the observation was we've got lots of inventions that just don't get adopted very quickly. And I thought we could make a difference at Mars. And I think we, we, we did, we did make some progress in that. Um, But doing that also, you know, highlighted just how difficult that adoption problem is. Uh, I returned to the private sector as chief commercial officer at spark power. I thought that was a platform that could bring uh, new technologies to bear into traditional industries. Um, And I, I, uh, formed Red Jar together with uh, the rest of the management team from uh, Spark Power. Actually, we're investing our own capital and finding ways to uh, change the pace of adoption in clean energy.
0: All right. I want to share a quote and get you to expand on it. Uh, you said that we don't have an invention problem. We have an adoption problem. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah. when When I became managing director at the Advanced Energy Center. I mean, our, our whole focus was was how do we increase the adoption of innovation uh, in the energy sector? And we really saw the problem wasn't one of what technologies were available, That the problem was one of adoption. How do we actually use them? And, and it, it always sounds like, well, that should be an easy problem to fix. It, it's really not. The reason there is an adoption problem is because of the way our energy systems work developed over, you know, the last hundred years, how does a utility system work with a regulator and market makers? Um, The way the incentive systems work in large businesses, especially regulated businesses, especially the way those decisions are made, they all tend to slow down adoption. As a VC, I used to see lots of companies with inventions that they had a hard time bringing to market. That is always the hardest thing. And so you really have two choices. You either figure out how to bring technologies to bear that can work within the existing incentive systems. So those tend to be, you know, very often more, um, you know, gradual changes. they are better technology, but it does the, the same thing in essentially the same way. You know, it's a better transformer. It's a better uh, thermostat for your house, for that matter. You know, these are things that are relatively easy to adopt because you don't have to change everything else around them. Uh, much harder would be to change the whole system to make it work differently. And often we'll see, you know, the big thinkers saying, well, we should just, you know, have systems work completely differently. And yeah, that would be interesting. It would work. It just tends to be really, really hard. So um, I really think, you know, we we still have things to invent, let's be clear, but we have a much bigger challenge in front of us. And how do we adopt the things that already are invented and how do we uh, bring them to market much more quickly?
0: Yeah, and you make a really good point. Once things are said, it's very challenging for people to break that down and think about approaching that issue in a completely different way. But I want to talk about the technologies that are available. We hear a lot about hydrogen. Can you tell me what are some other potential uses of hydrogen?
1: Yeah, sure. So hydrogen is fascinating in that, in, in that there could be a lot of different uses. Um We talk a lot about it potentially in transportation. So the idea of, of, for example, long haul trucking using hydrogen as opposed to diesel or optimistically natural gas where people have thought about it and that's never really uh, attracted a ton of attention. Um, There's potentially use of hydrogen simply injecting it into our existing natural gas supply and simply reducing carbon emissions that way um, at concentrations I've heard everything from five to 15%, um, you know, your existing appliances will work the same as they do. And, and we're just reducing the emissions associated with natural gas by that amount. I know people that are working on hydrogen as a way to supply stationary energy. So for example, think of the film industry where you're on set and they would normally use diesel gen sets. They're loud, they're noisy, they smell, um, so I I know of people that are thinking about bringing stationary you know stationary generators using hydrogen or fuel cells. So we've seen a bunch of applications like that. I think there's also going to be applications for very large scale. Uh, what you almost would think of as storage, in a way, that's what hydrogen is. When you create hydrogen, you've actually taken you've used a bunch of energy to create hydrogen. That hydrogen is now effectively storage and at scale we can then use that to reinject into the electric grid or in fact we could use it for other uses. So hydrogen could be a very flexible solution or a very key part of the of the of the clean energy transition.
0: What about carbon capture and sequestration? Can you walk us through the state of play with this technology?
1: Yeah, I I I I think to to start, you know, we probably are far enough down the path, you know, we're just finished COP26. And I, you know, generally people are not super happy with exactly how far we got with that. It's likely true that we're going to have to figure out how to do some amount of carbon capture and sequestration um, because we're so far down the path. Um, that said, you know, you sort of said, where is it at? It's still, you know, kind of expensive. Um, and, I, and I think perhaps the one thing that... Um, Uh, You know, proponents of alternatives would talk about there's something like, you know, 40 megatons a year uh, being captured in in CCS facilities right now. I suppose the one unfortunate thing is most of that carbon is then used to is used for enhanced oil recovery. So, yes, we're capturing the hydrogen, except we're using it to make ourselves more efficient at extracting fossil fuels, which ultimately, you know, can't be what we're focused on. We're also starting to see more of the alternative, which would be direct air capture. There's a company called Carbon Engineering in Squamish. There's Climeworks in Iceland. Both have been in the news a little bit lately that effectively are these giant fans on top of buildings and they're literally sucking in the air that has carbon dioxide in it and extracting it and either injecting it into rock in the case of Climeworks or trying to convert it into liquid fuels in the case of carbon engineering. These are still pretty small scale projects, but they're getting bigger and they still kind of require carbon pricing in the six hundred dollars a ton range. So that's you know quite a bit higher than where we're at. But I it strikes me as a venture capitalist as an investor is within striking distance, right? You know, it's yeah, it's got to get 10 times cheaper, but that's the kind of thing that that innovators do. And that's that is where we still need invention, you know, as we talked about talked about earlier
0: and earlier yeah now i want to talk to you about storage but before we do i'm hoping that you can explain the difference between power and energy
1: yeah so so always a little bit difficult power power is the rate at which you produce or consume in this case electricity you usually measure power in watts or kilowatts or megawatts that's what we're we're used to energy is the amount of electricity that you consume so and you measure that in kilowatt hours or megawatt hours typically Um, And so, you know, if you've got a 60 watt white light bulb, that means it draws 60 watts, that's how much power it consumes. And in an hour, it will use 60 kilowatt hours um, of electricity. So um, I sometimes think of it, a good analogy is between speed and distance. Power is kind of like speed. So you're driving 100 kilometers an hour in your car. um, In two hours, you cover 200 kilometers. That's your distance. Distance is kind of like energy. Power is kind of like speed. So. Um, With with batteries then, because, you know, you want to talk about storage, those are both really important measures, power and energy. Power is the amount of electricity that I can push into the battery or the rate at which I can push either energy into the battery or take it out. But energy is the amount of electricity, if you will, that is contained in the battery. And I think we tend to think about energy when we measure batteries. You know, if you think about people talking about cars, you'll talk about, my car has a 50 kilowatt hour battery or an 80 kilowatt hour battery. But you really also do have to be worried about power when you're talking about these things, particularly for grid scale applications.
0: Yeah, and you kind of just touched on my next question, talking about ion batteries. Lithium ion batteries might work for electric vehicles, but not for the grid level storage we need to invest more in renewables. Is that the, is that the answer? Um,
1: I mean, we do have lithium ion operating at grid scale. So um, Tesla's Hornsdale project in Australia got a lot of press. Was it a year ago, two years ago? You know, that's a big battery, 100 megawatts, 129 megawatt hours. So um, that, you know, if if you've seen pictures of it, it's sort of, you know, several football fields worth of big containers with big batteries in it. But if you take that project, you know, 100 megawatts, 129 megawatt hours, that means it's got about 80 minutes of storage. That's it, right? So, you know, you're not going to last, you know, if you had a a grid blackout, that's not going to supply energy for any longer than 80 minutes. Um, When we think about what we need to have happen at the grid, you have to happen, at think, in a number of different timescales. So the reason Hornsby's a grid scale project it's for resilience for these temporary challenges they're having in the grid and and it's perfectly good for that and I think they're very happy with with the output. What we also need is a way to, you know, bridge renewables. So you might need a few hours of storage for when your wind goes down or your solar goes down to create, you know, smoothing conditions in the grid. So think in terms of four hours or maybe eight hours. We ultimately also need, though, to store stuff from day to week. You know, we don't need as much on the weekend, but we need more during the week. So we might want to have storage that can have, you know, days. And when you go further, we may want storage that goes across seasons, right? If you think about us in Canada in the north, we will, say, produce more energy in the summer when it's sunnier. And we've got, you know, especially if we're using renewables, but the hours of sunlight are much less in the winter. We might actually literally want to move energy from summer to winter. And in fact, that's how the people who've designed the grid think of it. They really think of seasonal storage. And so all these things are important. Lithium ion is great. I think most observers would say, you know, up to about four hours of storage, but beyond that, the cost of adding energy storage to lithium ion is very high. And so we have to seek alternatives. Um, And that's what we're, I, I think we'll talk about that as well.
0: We're going to pause here because it's that time in the show to hear from an OPG Climate Challenger. Today's OPG Climate Challenger is Christina Dimitrov, whose work is all about preparing the company to adopt and disseminate the carbon-reducing
2: technologies of tomorrow. Hi, my name is Christina Dimitrov, and I'm a Senior Manager of Strategic Initiatives at Ontario Power Generation. As listeners of the Climate Challengers will know, OPG generates power using familiar sources such as hydro and nuclear, But what may surprise you are the activities OPG is undertaking in new and emerging technologies. As we electrify more and more of our lives, from our cars to our home heating, demand for electricity will increase. So we need to be ready and a big part of that readiness means being able to store surplus energy during times of low demand so it can be used when demand is highest. Meaning we can take full advantage of intermittent sources of renewables such as solar and wind. OPG's first experience with battery storage was in the Northwest, in the Gull Bay First Nations community. Here, we co-developed a microgrid that would help reduce the community's reliance on diesel generators using a combination of solar panels, battery storage, and automated control technology. To provide a sustainable, locally-owned solution, solar capacity is backed up with a battery storage system to ensure the community is using a clean power source, even on cloudy winter days. OPG is also very interested in the future of nuclear power, and that makes sense because OPG is Canada's leader when it comes to nuclear and we believe there is no path to net zero without it. SMRs are the future of nuclear. Smaller and easier to operate than traditional nuclear plants, they are critical to meeting demand for emission-free power. The smaller scale of an SMR also makes it ideal for meeting electricity needs of smaller communities or larger industrial clients. I think of myself as a climate challenger because of the decisions I make as a consumer. I use my dollars to advocate for newer, cleaner technologies that reduce my home's energy use and lower emissions. Things like upgraded windows, a smart thermostat, and an on-demand water heater. I currently drive a hybrid vehicle, but once my kids are out of the house and I no longer have to schlep around two goalie bags, I plan to switch to a fully electric vehicle.
0: All right, Ron, big question for you. Tell us why you
1: are Um, pro-nuclear. I'm probably pro-nuclear because uh, my uncle used to be a nuclear engineer for Cantu and built reactors in Korea and Romania. (laughs) There you go. So I grew up with it. Um, I I, I think objectively, though, it, it would be hard not to see nuclear as one of the, if not the safest form of energy production. You know, coal mining, just mining coal, not burning it. Mining coal kills something like ten or 12,000 people a year. If you try to add up all the people that have ever died from nuclear accidents, it would be no more than a few hundred uh, over all time. Um, and obviously, a big part of that is because of the precautions we take, right? We, we are very, very careful. There's a lot of regulation to build a nuclear power plant. And that does tend to drive timelines and costs up, you know, uh, probably a good idea given, you know, the, the problems of having... Uh, nuclear fail. And the challenge with this is, I, I, and I'm not sure I know how to fix it. I think the nuclear industry has not necessarily been the best at its own PR because um, a lot of people are still afraid of nuclear. I, I had the chance to travel a lot when I ran the Advanced Energy Center. And it was interesting, relatively few countries that didn't have nuclear were interested in adding it. And I couldn't necessarily understand why. You know, it made total sense to me as baseload for many of these places. Um, but they don't, I, and I would just say this: we're we're fortunate to have the nuclear fleet that we do in Ontario. Uh, we're fortunate to have generally very solid, you know, nonpartisan public and political support for it. Um, and and I think again, I I think we'll find that others are envious of the position we have, as perhaps Europe is of France right now with its nuclear fleet. Uh, you know, the 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 cautionary tale of Germany, which you know had I in my view, quite a knee-jerk reaction to the Fukushima incident and essentially decided to close down their nuclear power plants. But the net result of that has been an extremely significant increase in cost of power to their citizens and increased emissions at the same time because effectively the nuclear fleet was replaced with coal. And so you gotta be really careful when you decide not to do something. And uh, I, I know that that won't happen to us in Ontario, um, we're, we're lucky for what we have and we should uh, counter blessings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But you bring up a point that I want to ask you a little bit more about. You, you The marketing for nuclear, a lot of people don't trust it. What can be done to change people's minds about the way they think and feel about nuclear?
1: Um, I know it's a big question, but... It, it's a great question. I, I, I think we really have to you know, focus on getting some of the, the mysteriousness out of it. I mean, the only thing I can think of, you know, radiation is scary, right? You know, it's this invisible thing that can kill you, but I kind of feel like smog is the same thing, you know, and, and we've somehow managed (laughs) to convince people that smog is a bad thing. It hurts your, you know, I think what we need to do in, in nuclear is emphasize, you know, the sort of the facts that I've provided. This, it, forget about being dangerous. This is the safest form of large scale power generation, um, and you know, bring the facts out and demonstrate what the alternatives are. I think the nuclear industry has started to carry a message around. Um, you know, we are part of the solution. We're part of the clean tech solution. I think that's the right the right thing for the nuclear industry to do. Um, it likely is also true that the industry has to find ways to, you know, identify where it fits even better. You know, where will SMRs fit better? Where will, you know, where does baseload fit better? And then I, I think the nuclear industry has to find ways to, you know, ensure that wherever it has, you know, adoption that that adoption continues, which I, I do think they're they're doing.
0: Okay. But when it comes to storage, there are opportunities to repurpose existing infrastructure. So can you explain why that is considered the place to start?
1: Yeah, so um, you know, you can think infrastructure can have lots of pieces. Um, again, HydroStore will end up, you know, potentially using abandoned, you know, mine shafts, right? Anything that's got it's deep and it can pour water in and it doesn't leak out, that that could be an application. Um, The other thing I think we're seeing is that some of these large scale infrastructure plays can reuse, if not existing infrastructure, at least existing um, capabilities that have been developed for a different purpose. So another example, if we're digging big holes, well, who digs big holes? Well, actually, the fossil fuel industry has been doing that for a long time with drilling technology. And so to the extent we can repurpose those technologies to bring clean energy solutions or storage solutions to bear, I mean, that's a great thing. That actually provides transition, right, for old economy to new economy. Um, so these are very these are very positive uh, developments, I think, where we can reuse how things work right now.
0: So, Ron, I'm curious, where are you placing your bets now? What's piquing your interest?
1: It's a great question, Andrea. I, I, I think the best opportunities are in the companies that are finding ways to improve the built environment. So, if you think about it, you know, new technologies, cars, um, uh, new building technologies. If you're building a new house, these are all great. They're important. They are part of the solution. But if we don't find ways to address the built environment, the houses that are 50, 75, 100 years old, uh, we're going to have a hard time really making a, a big enough dent uh, in our in our energy budgets and in our in our emissions. Um, I think there's this great opportunity and we're starting to see a bunch of companies that are figuring out ways to, you know, retrofit existing buildings, whether it's with smarter building management systems, companies like Brainbox AI and Shift Energy, um, whether it's smarter thermostats, even for your house, Ecobee, whether it's um, companies finding ways to uh, re-insulate older buildings, whether it's finding ways to improve uh, uh, how replacement windows might work. These are all really important ideas and technologies that will, I, I think, deliver outsized returns for the people that can figure out how to bring them to market uh, cost-effectively and, and with great value propositions for customers.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you see as some of the more promising uses of small modular reactors?
1: Yeah, I think that it's interesting. It's right in the name, right? Small and modular. So. Uh, we've got different companies building these in different sizes, uh, you know, as small as five or 10 megawatts and up to 60 or hundred megawatts. Uh, that to me says is that these are great solutions for uh, communities that are probably not otherwise grid connected um, or for significant large industrial applications that need power for, you know, some period of time, need it quickly. It's too difficult to get transmission connections I still think there's probably a role for smrs in the grid you know it's quite conceivable that we need 50 megawatts of power at a particular location and and adding something like that to the grid might make sense um i, I think we'll see them then in you know heavy industry uh remote communities mining communities etc and i think this just represents yet another bet on what we can do in the future this idea of large scale I'm going to use the term portable, you know, relatively portable power. We've never really had that before. So I also think that we're going to think of more applications as these things become available over the next, you know, seven, eight, nine years. Um, We do have to resolve some of the regulatory issues, of course, around where do I place them? What does containment look like? You know, how do I operate them safely? Uh, But, you know, our nuclear industry is well versed in in how to do that. So, I'm optimistic that these will have a role somewhere in this clean energy transition,
0: yeah, absolutely. all right. so you've traveled a lot of, all over the world. um What do you hear from people about Ontario's grid when you travel? What do they say?
1: Yeah, they mostly you know part of what our our story for Mars was helping educate people about you know Canada in general and Ontario in particular and and what we've done in 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 the grid and and I think in general. Uh, I would say there was uh surprise. People, you know, didn't know, didn't, <laughs> they, they often didn't know where Ontario was, but then when they did, you know, they didn't necessarily <laughs> appreciate, you know, how far we had come in the modernization of our electricity system. Part of it was, you know, the energy mix that we do have and the very low GHG intensity of the Ontario grid. Um, but it extended past that. It extended to, you know, our uh, adoption of smart meters, you know, now. Almost 15 years ago, um, you know, really world leadership position. Our adoption of different forms of energy storage. We've been through, even in this, in this, in this podcast today, you know, the number of Canadian companies with really innovative storage technologies that are making, you know, a significant impact in the globe. Um, people are surprised that, you know, Canada, Ontario, small in the global context, um, are, are delivering that kind of value.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. So why do you think Ontario is a, a great place to be a climate challenger?
1: It's interesting. I think we benefited from the four years of the Trump administration, for one thing. Um, <laughs> it, it's um, Ontario generally, and I'm going to say Toronto, I think in, spe- in, in specific, um, is generally viewed to be a pretty great place to live. You know, Toronto is high on many uh livability lists and, and, and is viewed as a, as a great city and Canada is a great country to be in. When we compare against the alternatives and people are choosing, you know, where to live, you know, we win a lot of the time. We saw that at Mars. We saw, you know, really a reverse brain drain if, that, that if, if countries like the U.S. are going are, are to appear to be uh, unfriendly, you know, to really smart uh, people from around the world who are looking for a place to be innovators uh, we were happy to be that place. Um, and, and so I think we've got, we've had a reverse brain drain. There's actually, capital has become a lot more mobile. So it didn't matter whether the capital was here or somewhere else. VCs have discovered Canada and are plowing dollars into it. And it's a great place to, to build from, right? We're beside the world's biggest market, uh, easy to travel to, easy culturally. Um, so Ontario, Canada, Toronto, great places to build companies from.
0: Yeah, and we got a lot of talent here. All right, in the very beginning of this conversation, you kind of gave us the uh, the roadmap of how you came to this to this career path that you're on now. So, what is it? What does it mean to you to be a climate challenger?
1: So, to me, that means figuring out this adoption question. Um, There's lots of inventors. There's fewer people who know how to drive adoption at scale. I think that usually means finding seams in the way things already work and finding ways to bring new technologies, new solutions. Um, Adoption happens really fast if you can find a way to bring things to people that are just demonstrably better, cheaper, faster, et cetera, right? When we think about things like mobile phone adoption, it was actually really fast. It was never mandated. Nobody told you had to do it. You just wanted to do it, and 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 you know people have been upgrading things like that all the time. That at some level that's a lot of change, but it's happened you know in, in in many age groups across different cultures. You you think about it, that has been a textbook case in how to drive adoption really quickly. We have to find ways to do the same things in energy, and so that means I think bringing solutions uh, to the built environment that are just better, cheaper, faster than what people have. Um, I think it means uh, you know changing the way we think about transportation. I think it means changing the way we think about even how we eat. Um, I think it means, but it but it's got to feel better for people. It can't be. It can't. I don't think it it will be successful if it comes from a place of taking away things or or not doing what people want to do. We have to find ways to do it so that they're happier, better off, and are creating a a greener climate for our children and their children
0: and that is the key and the perfect way to end this conversation ron i can't thank you enough thank you so much for your time great conversation uh lots to think about uh once again i want to thank you so much for your time ron thank you andrea I want to thank my guest, Ron Dizzy, for a fascinating conversation about the technologies of the future. I hope that, like me, this discussion has left you feeling optimistic about the challenges ahead. We know that fighting climate change is not going to be easy, but with the innovators at OPG and throughout Ontario who are working every day to bring new carbon reducing solutions online, we can be confident that we will continue to lead the way to a better cleaner tomorrow. Thanks for joining us today and we'll see you next time.